Hello and welcome to another episode of The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley. Over the past decade, Andrew Bacevich has emerged as one of our sharpest critics of American foreign policy and as a keen analyst of the troubled relationship between civilians and the military. His books include The New American Militarism, How Americans Are Seduced by War, The Limits of Power, The End of American Exceptionalism, and most recently, America's War for the Greater Middle East, A Military History. His insights pack an extra punch because Basevich is a former military man himself. He rose to the rank of colonel in the U.S. Army before retiring and going on to teach international relations and history at Boston University, where he's now Professor Emeritus. Peter Kazis and I spoke with Basevich about the strikingly militaristic nature of President-elect Donald Trump's administration. Remember, Trump denigrated the military's leaders during the campaign, but so far he's tapped four generals for key roles, a number that's without precedent in recent American history. Basevich thinks this is a deeply troubling trend, but he also sees at least one significant glimmer of hope in Trump's nascent foreign policy. Take a listen. Thank you for uh, for making time to do this. And let me ask you at the outset, given that the president-elect said during the campaign, I know more about ISIS than the generals do, believe me. And given that the president-elect also suggested he might actually purge the ranks of the generals if he was elected, are you surprised that he's turned around and said he wants to appoint four generals to prominent posts in his administration? Well, I'm very surprised, uh, but uh, of course, I think I think we are surprised by what the president-elect has to say on almost a daily basis. Uh, but of the, uh, of the themes that seem to emerge from his candidacy, uh, one was certainly a skepticism about uh, our wars and a critical attitude toward the military leaders responsible for conducting those wars. And so he has uh, seemingly reversed course and embarked upon this bromance uh, <laughs> with generals. And we're going we're to, assuming that they are confirmed, Michael Flynn as National Security Advisor doesn't need confirmation, but assuming that the others are confirmed, we will have a a greater concentration of recently retired senior military officers in very senior positions, uh, more of them in the Trump administration than we've ever seen in any other administration. That is a striking fact. What do you attribute that about phase two? You know, I think we're getting in the realm of, uh, of, of psychoanalyzing here. I, I, I cannot explain it. Uh, I think all we can do is to uh, except uh, that uh, the president-elect has suddenly become enamored uh, with senior military officers. And I think the, the really relevant question is uh, what to make of it and, and whether this is something that citizens should accept with equanimity or whether they might view this as problematic. My view is it's problematic. Uh, and the reason it's problematic is, is chiefly that uh, – this uh, undermines, uh, perhaps not consciously, intentionally, but I do think it 
ends up undermining the concept of civilian control in our country. Uh, that's a principle that says that uh, basic policy is made by civilians, those who are elected and those who the president appoints, and that the job of the military is, yes, to provide advice uh, to senior civilian decision makers, but it's primarily to implement the decision of, of senior civilian decision makers. We are now heading into a situation where uh, decisions are going to be made by military officers, uh, and I'm, for one, I'm not comfortable with that. Professor, this heads right into something that I've been wondering about. It strikes me that foreign policy under George Bush II, you know, was almost totally militarized. Um, you know, not so much so under Obama. But what are the implications of having our relations with the world defined by soldiers rather than civilian diplomats? Well, I think I think you can broaden the argument. Uh, I mean, there there has been a tendency toward militarizing U.S. policy that uh, in, began with the early Cold War uh, and continued through the Cold War, and then I, I think gained renewed impetus uh, after the end of the Cold War when the United States found itself in what we chose to call the status of the world's sole superpower. And then it got further impetus again at the time of 9-11. So, so the problem of U.S. policy being militarized is not a, a new problem. In a sense, I think, the Trump appointments uh, bring that process of militarization uh, to our attention simply because he has chosen to appoint such a large number of military officers uh, to these senior positions. And, you know, we might also note in passing uh, that the, his selection to be the director of the CIA uh, is, a, uh, is a West Point graduate, former Army officer. Didn't stay in long enough to become a general, but again, somebody with, with that kind of a military background. We've got another cabinet member who is a uh, former Navy SEAL, retired uh, naval officer. So, so the military uh, the, the profile of this team is particularly uh, evident. In the past, you've suggested in interviews and in various pieces of writing that American generals are better at winning promotion than winning wars. Why are the skills that are needed to move up through the ranks, so with odds with winning a victory. I think I think that the explanation for our lack of conclusive success in the wars we undertake uh, reflects a, a multitude of factors. Defective generalship is one. Defective political leadership is another one. Ill-chosen wars—that is to say, wars that may not even be winnable. Uh, given the given the level of effort that we, the American people, are willing to undertake, there's just a variety of factors. But nonetheless, if if the job of a senior military leader, in the simplest terms, is to achieve victory, then we have a senior senior military leadership that has has fallen short. 
why then appoint them to be in charge of the Pentagon, in charge of the Homeland Security Department, in charge of the National Security Advisor? That's the question you'd like to hear uh, Mr. Trump reflect on. Just to follow up on Peter's question, do you see a tension between the attributes that are required to ascend to the top of the armed forces and the traits that are required to successfully prosecute a war? You know, I, I, think, I'd, I think I'd put it this way. Uh, and, and first of all, nothing that I'm about to say should somehow suggest that all generals are alike, that they all uh, are in the grip of an identical mindset, that they march in lockstep. That would be unfair and it would be wrong. But I would say this. The military profession uh, to which these men, and they're all men, to which these men have devoted their lives, is an, is an all-embracing uh, experience. It's, it's not unlike, I suspect, I'm not a clergyman, it's not unlike, I suspect, being a priest in the Catholic Church and ascending to the level of being a cardinal archbishop. The, the calling is something to which you've devoted your life. Uh, and that cannot help but shape your worldview. And it cannot help but determine a set of, of priorities. And, and that worldview, the world, the worldview of, of looking at, the, at, at, at events through a military lens, is not necessarily the kind of perspective that uh, we need today, given the circumstance in which we find ourselves in, in, the, in the world, given, given the problem set that we confront, whether you're, whether you're referring to unrest in the greater Middle East or problems with tensions with Russia or a growing rivalry with China or with global problems such as uh, climate change. That perspective to, to which one I think almost inevitably uh, adheres as a result of 30 or 40 years in the military is not necessarily a, a helpful one. And given the fact that we're, we're a country of about 320 million uh, citizens, it seems to me that uh, I, I would argue that it would be preferable to, to hire somebody to fill these jobs who, who, ha who came from a different calling, uh, who, who didn't necessarily adhere to the worldview that you absorb by spending so much of your adult life uh, in uniform. I would love to get your take on the different qualities that the individuals we've been talking about as a group will bring to the Trump administration and the type of influence that they might bring to bear on the president-elect. My sense is that in that regard, it's a pretty varied group. Apparently, James Mattis was able to talk Trump out of his interest in bringing back waterboarding by saying he can get more out of a detainee with a six-pack and a pack of cigarettes or something like that. And that apparently changed Trump's mind. John Kelly, his pick for Homeland Security, was cited in a Politico article as a potential moderating influence on the Trump administration. And then, conversely, we've got Michael Flynn, who has said that Islam is a political ideology masquerading as a religion, and Keith Kellogg, who has co-written a piece for Fox News with Michael Flynn, saying that essentially... Uh, Sunni Islam and Shia Iran share the same nefarious goals when it comes to their relationship to the West. So how do you see these four um, 
pushing Trump in different directions for better or worse, assuming that they all end up serving in the roles that he'd like them to? Well, I, I think General Flynn is the is the problem. I mean, he's he's the one that stands out. Uh, he he is an ideologue. He is patently an Islamophobe. Uh, to some degree, uh, if you recall his uh, performance at the Republican National Convention, he comes across as slightly unhinged. Uh, and to have him be the national security advisor, uh, I find deeply, deeply troubling. But but your little review making the point they're they're not all identical. They're not clones of one another. Is a very good one. Um, and Flynn is the one that I you know if 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 you sort of gave me a preemptive challenge and I could just uh, reject one of them in a millisecond, I, I'd reject Flynn and 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 be more inclined to accept the others. Are there any of them about whom you have some measure of enthusiasm? I would say. No, uh, but my no stems from the fact that I have a strong prefer- preference for seeing civilians right. uh, fill these uh, positions. And you might say, well, okay, give me the names of the three civilians. There are four civilians you want, and I'd, I'd, I'd probably be hard-pressed to give you you know, the, the right name. Uh, you know, give me six civilian alternatives to General Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, and, and I probably could come up with a with a with a considered recommendation. Well, let's consider a civilian who happens to be a Fortune 500 CEO, Rex right. Tillerson, the uh, head of Mobile Exxon. My own somewhat eccentric opinion is I'm not as outraged by his appointment as some of my colleagues are. He's clearly an accomplished man. Even before we get into the complications posed by Russia and his past business with them, what, if anything, do you make of Tillerson just on the surface? Well, I, I, I don't know that I have that much of a problem on the surface. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I, I would say that if if the people who voted for Trump, that I'm not one of those people. But if the people who voted for Trump did so expecting that he was going to overturn the establishment and drain the swamp and stick up for the little guy, then appointing a, uh, uh, a CEO of a major multinational oil company to be the secretary of state doesn't seem to lend itself to those purposes. The Trump administration isn't going to be an administration that drains the swamp. Uh, it is it by and large, it is an administration that simply will reflect the interests of one particular wing of the of the establishment. That said, you know, corporate CEOs are probably sophisticated people. They're well traveled. They have some understanding of the way the world works. They prob- probably uh, have a, a broader perspective uh, than most uh, military officers. I don't view his involvement with Russia as necessarily disqualifying. Uh, were I on the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, which will have to consider his suitability for the position, I'd sure ask a heck of a lot of tough questions about his view of Russia, his relations with Putin and the like. But if he gives the right answers, or, or at least reasonable answers, then it doesn't seem to me that his background necessarily should disqualify him for the position. I'd love to get you to 
talk a little more about where you see things going with Russia, because maybe this is simply because I grew up in the um, in the seventies and eighties and am still uh, gripping to a Cold War mindset. But I find everything that's been happening around Russia over the course of this campaign season and now during the election, after the election, to be a little surreal. As we all know, Donald Trump expressed repeated admiration for Vladimir Putin during the campaign, praised him as a strong leader with high uh, approval ratings from his own people. Uh, It seems to me pretty clear that Putin is a, a dictator and a despot who disregards human rights on a regular basis in his own country and has dreams of reversing the decline that occurred when the Soviet Union fell apart. So why do you... Well, I mean, I oh, go ahead. All, yeah, go ahead. All, all true. Okay. All true. So, but oh, yeah, please hop in. But he's not, he's not Stalin, uh, and Russia is not the Soviet Union. Uh, and therefore, the, the notion that uh, this adversarial relationship that we have with Russia, and we do have an adversarial relationship is somehow returning us to the late 1940s or, or, or 1950s, it seems to me, is a fundamental misreading of the situation. The, the Russian threat uh, is simply not comparable to what the Soviet threat was. One of the things that made the Soviet threat uh, as, as, as uh, ominous as it appeared back in the early stages of the Cold War was that Europe itself, uh, was exceedingly weak, had been weakened, had been devastated uh, by World War II. Today, I would not by any means dismiss uh, the internal problems of, of Europe, but when we look at Germany today, it's not the West Germany of you know 1948 and 1949. Quite frankly, if the Europeans would get their act together, uh, they could, I think, easily handle the threat posed by Russia. And one of the challenges facing the United States is to encourage the Europeans to get their act together, or to put it another way, to encourage them to reduce their dependence upon the United States uh, with regard to meeting their own security requirements. We, we need to quit indulging the inclination of the Europeans to outsource their security to the United States. That's something that, that Trump actually has said that I think has has considerable merit. Now, some people might hear the words that I just said and say, oh, obviously, he's an isolationist and he wants to pull out of NATO the day after tomorrow. That's not, that's not my view. Uh, but it is my view uh, that we need to make a concerted effort to wean the Europeans from this notion that they have to depend on us to deal with a threat to their security, which is far, far less than the threat that, of, of the Soviet Union back in Cold War days. And we continually let the Europeans uh, off the hook. If you compare the percentage of, of, of GDP that they spend on defense and compare it to the United States, well, there is no comparison. Hmm. They're spending like 1.5%, 2%, or somewhere around 4 4.5%. There's no reason why they can't spend more, and they, and they ought to. There is, there is value in the United States being able to demonstrate that the the long-term effects of American assistance and support is to bring into existence a community of self-sufficient 
and like-minded nations, nations that share our values and can handle their own affairs. The purpose of U.S. foreign policy is not simply to accumulate dependencies. Uh, And today there is no reason why Europe should be dependent upon the United States of America. So we it, it's like, you know, it's like when you raise your kids and they get to a certain age yeah. and you say, okay, now you need to go off on your own. You, need, you, can, you can handle this. You can be an adult. Well, first off, I have to thank you for uh, taking my anxiety level down a little bit. We're <laughs> recording this on the day that the Russian ambassador to Turkey was assassinated. Yeah. And uh, right before coming down here, I was reading a quote from a uh, an ally of Putin's who suggested that this assassination was carried out on behalf of a NATO country. So uh, I've been feeling a little anxious about this stuff lately, and, and it's it's spiked today. So thank you for calming me down a little bit. But what, may I, oh, yeah. but may I, but may I say, uh, uh, I, w- I want to emphasize, Russia is an adversary. You know, if, 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 if President-elect Trump thinks that Putin is his friend, and thinks that, therefore, his friendship with Putin is going to lead to a Russo-American friendship, I think that's a great delusion. My argument is simply to, to, that we need to uh, keep the Russian threat in perspective uh, and, and, and not to overreact. And I think that the tendency to confuse Russia with the old Soviet Union leads to an overreaction that in the long run is not going to be helpful. Got it. Let me ask you one closing question on the Russia front. To what extent do you see there being a possibility of a fruitful partnership between the United States and Russia when it comes to the Middle East and or fighting the war on ISIS and al-Qaeda and similar groups? I turn that into a follow-up question. That's a huge question. That's the $64 question. and I, I, I don't believe that uh, cooperation with Russia holds the key. Uh, to my mind, the, the, key is, the, the, the key is held by the nations that are in the region. Uh, this is an argument that I've been trying to make, and I have to confess I've persuaded no one. <laughs> uh, but I, but I, I have come to the conclusion that the, the nations that have the greatest interest in the restoration of stability in that part of the world are the nations that live there. The nations that are at the greatest risk uh, by the existence of radical organizations such as ISIS are the nations that live there. For what it's worth, so, you may have persuaded so Bernie Sanders. So, I remember him saying something very similar to that on the campaign trail. Sorry, go ahead. No, but, but so it so it, it is it. So Iran and Saudi Arabia view themselves as great rivals, and 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 in many respects they are rivals. But but with regard to 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 reversing the ongoing implosion of that part of the world, it seems to me that the interests of Iran and Saudi Arabia align, and and the purpose of American diplomacy should be to encourage. Iran and Saudi Arabia, and Turkey, and Iraq, and Egypt, to recognize that they have a common interest in uh, in in dealing with this threat of Islamic uh, radicalism uh, in in their midst. Not to not to forget all the other issues on which they have deeply rooted historical differences, but to focus on the 
looming common threat that is right in front of them. The, the approach of the United States, going back decades now, has, has been based on the expectation that the introduction of American military power in some form, whether it's invasion, whether it's airstrikes, whether it's covert operations, whether it's advisors and trainers, our approach has, has been based on the conviction that American military power can somehow or other alleviate the situation and fix the problem. That has not worked. So, so the, the most pressing uh, requirement on our part is to recognize the failure of U.S. military efforts. Only then does it become possible to begin uh, seriously considering alternatives, such as the alternative that I just uh, very, very briefly described. But if, indeed, the assumption that American military power, in some form, holds the solution to the problem, then my fear is that we will simply keep barreling down the road that we've been on for decades now, and we'll make things worse. And the cost that will be borne by the United States will be great, and the cost that will be inflicted upon the people of the region will be greater still. Let's put the issue of probabilities aside for a second. But if you could urge one or two, let's call them baby steps, on the incoming administration as to um, uh, nods in the right direction, what would they be? Well, one of them would be I'd stop supporting uh, Saudi Arabia in its uh, war in uh, in Yemen. Yemen. I would stop underwriting that, which we have, which we have uh, done. Um, I think that I would recognize, as painful as it is. I, I would recognize that, uh, in all likelihood, the Assad regime is going to survive, uh, and 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 therefore we have to uh, take that into account, uh, and and to work toward a solution to instability that will include Assad, rather than working toward a a a, a, a working to overthrow Assad with the expectation that whatever follows Assad uh, is going to promote stability. And I say that's painful because Assad is a brutal dictator. Yeah. Uh, but again, to emphasize, at this stage of the game, uh, the plausible purpose of U.S. policy is not to spread democracy and liberal values in that part of the world. We, we tried that. We tried that in invading Iraq, and it didn't work. So the, at, at this stage, given this set of circumstances, the most we can hope to achieve, and, and achieving it will be very, very difficult indeed, is simply to, to, to tamp down the level of, of disorder, to restore something like coexistence between the nation states that, that exist there. And that's really, really, really difficult. And again, to emphasize, I just don't think that the further uh, application of American military power, either directly or indirectly, uh, gets us there. I asked for two. You gave me two. Thank you. Yes, I'd second that. Uh, Professor Basevich, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. It's a lot to chew on. Thanks very much. 
And that is going to do it for this installment of The Scrum. Thanks a great deal to Andrew Basevich for joining us. And as always, thanks to you for listening. You can find The Scrum on iTunes, where you should feel free to rate us, especially if you happen to be in a generous holiday mood. You can also find us on various podcatchers and online at blogs.wgbh.org scrum. Our producer is Jason Tresky. Our engineer for this episode is John Parker. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.